this champion came to my mind. And it's, it's difficult and it's a little dark. But the champion I have chosen, we know very little about. She is only mentioned briefly in two places in the scripture and much is left to speculation. Like many of us, she probably felt that her life wasn't that significant. She would probably be very surprised that after thousands of years, I am standing here tonight pointing her out as a champion. She had very little control over the circumstances of her life, but she was used by God to bring about the, in, the end of an entire kingdom. In the time of her darkest hour, her actions influenced the heart of a mighty king. The brief picture of her life that we will look at tonight gives us a clear and vivid picture of intercession. Who is she? Her name is Rizpah, daughter of Aya. She is first mentioned in 2 Samuel 3.7, and it says, And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. Now, let me give you a little background. I probably drive my daughter, Laura, crazy because I've got to get the background. I've got to tell you, you've got to love the characters or hate them, but you're going to know them. <laughs> Rizba lived in a time of governmental change in Israel. King Saul had disobeyed God on every level. His half-hearted obedience and his refusal to come under the authority of God, his Fear of the faces of men disqualified him to rule over God's people. Those same things apply to us today that are called to ministry. You can set yourself and disqualify yourself with incomplete obedience. The anointing was lifted from his life and the saddened prophet delivered this message to him. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. So Saul, when he had, had, dis he had not fully obeyed the Lord and he was trying to get out of it, Samuel was very displeased. He started to walk away from him and Saul grabbed a hold of his garment, and when he did, that garment was rent, and this is the word that came to him. When God speaks, it doesn't matter. It may take a while, but God's word will always be fulfilled. So David was anointed by God to rule, and there was, there was now war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And the house of David was growing stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul weaker. So this was the political atmosphere that Rizba lived in. Rizba was Saul's concubine. Rizba's name means hot or baking stone. She may have been very beautiful and desirable. Wives in this time were usually chosen for political alliances, and they were chosen to strengthen their alliances with different countries. 
Concubines were usually selected for the king's pleasure. They were given a secondary position and they never really reached the status of wife. They may be called wife. They always called the one who, they were, con- they were the, the concubine. They would have, she would have called Saul husband. But they were nevertheless second. Children produced by this arrangement were generally included in the king's genealogy and they would receive a part of any inheritance. We're not told how she was chosen. Her father's name is mentioned several times in scripture and he was a descendant of Esau, a Horite or a Hivite, and they even mentioned, I think, an Amorite. She may have been given to King Saul by the dad. We don't know. We do not know if Saul ever loved her, but he was the father of her two sons, Armoni and Mephibosheth. Not to be confused with Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. There are two. We first hear of Rizpah approximately seven and a half years after Saul's death. Saul's three older sons were killed with him, and Rizpah is now widowed. Saul's fourth son, Ishbosheth, is trying to establish his kingdom on the other side of the Jordan River at Mahanaim. His father ruled out of Gibeah. Saul had always ruled from Gibeah. And that's why I give you a little map. If you're a map and chart person like I am, you'll always appreciate the maps. Ishbosheth, this son, is a weak king. And he only received power with the aid of the army commander, Abner. Their goal is to pull together the ten northern tribes in opposition to David, who ruled over the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in portions of Simeon and Levi in the south. Abner was not only the commander of Saul's army, he was a cousin of Saul, so he would have been related to Ishbosheth. He supported Ishbosheth after Saul's death and set Ishbosheth up as king. They knew who was anointed king. But nevertheless, this is how it played out. And the normal custom in the days of Saul and David was for the new king to take the wives of the former kings as his wives or the concubines. So by all rights, Rizpah now would have belonged to Ishbosheth. But Ishbosheth was a weak man. Abner was a strong commander. People were afraid of him. And Ishbosheth made a big mistake. He accuses Abner of sleeping with Rizpah. And that's when we go back to the big, very beginning when she's first mentioned. It says, and Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ea. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, wherefore hast thou gone in unto my father's concubine? And Abner is infuriated. And he said, am I a dog? A dog's head. There's a very interesting study on that, and I'm not going to go into it because it's kind of X-rated. But anyway, he was very offended. Whether or not he did that, I don't know. But he was offended. And so here Rizpah is the middle, in the middle of this thing, knowingly or not, and the results 
are absolutely monumental. That little argument over this little lady, Abner defected to David's side, and he was soon murdered by Joab. Soon after Abner left, this weak king, Ishbosheth, was also murdered by two of his captains. Both of them ended up getting themselves killed because of Rizpah. And she really probably didn't know what was going on. It also effectively ended the war between Judah and Israel, and the house of Saul disappeared. The word of the Lord through Samuel was fulfilled right there. Was Rizba then taken into David's family? Now he's king. He's in Hebron. He is king. He's king over the, the ten tribes and the two. But we don't know. There was no answers in the scripture, so we do not know. But Rizba is widowed, and she has only two grown sons left. They were probably about 40 years old. Now we're going to read our text, and it comes from 2 Samuel 21, and it starts off, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites, and he spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And what shall I make and with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver, we will have no gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons, the only sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, and that is a corrupted um, translation right there. The five sons, it should be the five sons of Mirab, Saul had Two, son, two daughters, Mirab and Michael. Michael was childless, but she raised these children for Mirab, who apparently had passed away. So as in the five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzaleah, the Maholophite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest. In the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Rizba, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth 
And she spread it for herself on the rock. From the beginning of harvest, April, until the late rains poured, could be as late as October. And she poured, until the late rains poured on them from heaven, and she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizbah, the daughter of Ea, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and he took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the streets of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. And they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So judgment has come to the house of Saul. Famine had come upon Israel. There is a problem. When David inquires of the Lord, the Lord identifies Saul's house as bloodthirsty and specifically charged Saul's house with the killing of the Gibeonites. Don't think Armoni and Mephibosheth or the five grandsons of Saul were innocent. God identifies this household as bloodthirsty. Some common Bible commentators have a problem with this portion of Scripture because a specific incident is not pointed, pointed out to, pointed to. But God makes no mistakes. It may have been a series of things. But we can be sure that God in his wisdom was bringing about his purposes and dealing with sin. God has a problem with covenant breakers. God has a problem with breaking your word. God has a problem with treaty breakers. The children of Israel had made a treaty with the Gibeonites in the days of Joshua 400 years before David's time. Israel swore not to harm the Gibeonites, a neighboring tribe. God expected Israel to keep its promise, even though the Gibeonites tricked Israel into making the agreement. Saul's crime was not only in killing the Gibeonites, but also breaking the treaty. So the Gibeonites obtained the treaty by trickery, but they were punished for their deception and cursed to slavery, as recorded in Joshua 9. This is really important to catch this, because people say, well, well, well why would God do this? So what, where was this incident? There's nothing recorded. But listen to this. Joshua 9, verse 22, Joshua called for them, and he spoke to them, to the Gibeonites. And he says, why have you deceived us, saying we are very far from you? And if you remember the story, they came with their moldy bread and their ragged clothes, and they just were neighbors. And they, they wanted to come under his wing. They wanted to make a treaty. They wanted to be protected. And so in, in, they, it, things the way it looked, he was easily deceived. He had, but this is one time where you see Joshua has not inquired of the Lord. So he gets suckered into this. But nevertheless, it is a treaty. 
God is a covenant God. God is the God that when he says it, he means it. And he expects us to be the same. So Joshua says, why have you deceived us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves. This did not end. He's, this, is, this is throughout. None of you shall be freed from being slaves. Woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. Somehow, these Gibeonites were connected to the house of God in a slave position. They cut the wood. They carried the water. Okay. Could this famine relate back to the incident at the tabernacle located at Nob? Saul was responsible for giving the command to kill 85 priests. 85 men where there was no blemish in them. They were set aside unto the Lord. They were anointed and they were, going to, they were set aside to serve in the tabernacle in Nob. They couldn't have a mole. They couldn't have a, a, a turned finger. They could not have anything wrong with them. They had to be perfect to be able to serve in the house of the Lord. 85 men dressed in their white linen garments, ready for the priesthood, and and Saul is angry because they have assisted David. And so he says, he orders his men, he gives out the command, he says, kill them. And these Jews had enough sense. They did not want to do this. They would not turn their hand to kill those priests. But there happened to have been an Edomite there. And his name was, was Doeg. And he said, I'll do it. So what happened? 1 Samuel 22, verse 18. And the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priest. So Doeg the Edomite turned and he struck the priest and he killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also, he went to Nob, the city of the priest. He struck with the edge of the sword men, women, children, nursing infants, oxen, donkeys, and sheep with the edge of the sword. This is the city of the priest. Where do you think the woodcutters, where do you think the water carriers may have lived? They were connected. And so this may be, this may be an incident. And when I read that, because I have, I think if anybody's heard me teach for a while, this has really impressed me because I thought there's 85 men totally set aside, anointed to serve God. There's not anything wrong. They're without blemish. And that, that heathen would come in there and, and, and can you just imagine, because I could see it in my mind, this snow-white linen garments all covered with blood, the bloodshed that, would, that had gone on there. And I thought, Lord, why didn't you deal with that? I'm thinking in my mind, I know he's going to deal with that because you do not get away with sin. Sometimes you, you pay for your sin right away. Sometimes it's going to take a while. And you'll notice with, with uh, Saul, when the... When the his boys are being, and his grandsons are being uh, killed. They took him right back to his doorstep. 
he was right back there in Gibeah, right where he had ruled. Sin comes back to your door. It will, it will visit you if you do not deal with it. It will visit you if it is not under the blood. So Saul's two sons, my Rizpah and the five grandsons, were taken and they were hanged upon a hilltop at Gibeah for all to see. They were cursed. They were the accursed. And can you imagine a mother's heart? They ordinarily, when one was cursed, when one was hung upon a tree, it was the law that they be taken down and that they be buried. That's why they came by even when Jesus was on the cross. They knew those guys had got to come down. They had to be taken care of. And so this was not usual, what had happened here. So the next glimpse of Rizba reveals the heart of the intercessor. She no doubt watched the execution of her sons. It says that they were hung. It could be that they were impaled. They could have been dismembered, whatever. But then they were hung. And they weren't hung up high. They were hung down low because she worried about the wild animals getting them, the bodies. She worried about the vultures coming in. So what a ghastly scene that must have been during the beginning of barley harvest with these seven blood-covered bodies hanging on the respective trees. They were the cursed. She could not prevent their executions. She had no authority to cut them down. All she could do was to appeal to a higher authority to give them a proper burial. So she spread out that sackcloth on the rock. She didn't just sit there weeping. She refused to allow the vultures to gorge themselves on those corpses. She stood guard that no wild beasts could tear their bodies. Though the, through the days and the weeks and the months, she watched these broken bodies gradually bloat and blacken and decay and wither, but she never relaxed. She did not lose her position. She had no power to prevent the murder of her two sons and the other men, but none could prevent her from interceding on behalf of their mangled bodies on the gallow tree, leaving those bodies to hang unburied, defiled the law, defied the law that demanded that anyone hanged on a tree must be buried before sunset of the same day. She knew they could not be resurrected. But she wanted them to be buried. Rispa continued watching the decomposing bodies of the dead, standing out stark against the sky, wrestling through her tears, through anxious days and nights with the foul stench of those rotting corpses filling her nostrils, looking at the sons that she had loved which became unrecognizable to her. Rizpah spread that sackcloth on the rock, that sackcloth associated with mourning for the dead, but also the public expression of humiliation and penitence. She defended the dead five, maybe six months till the rain came, a token that God had withdrawn his judgment. Water out of the heavens, Reviving the famine-stricken land was recognized as a sign of God's mercy. And the painful watch in sackcloth over the dead was over. 
heaven and earth took action. David remembered that the uncared for bones of Saul and Jonathan, his best friend, were buried under a tree at Jabesh. He commanded that they should be recovered and mingled with the precious bones which Rizpah had guarded and buried in the family grave at Zelah. God was entreated for the land, and Rizba's desire for the proper respect for her dead was fulfilled, and the waters from heaven were sent, and the famine ended. In my closing part, we were born dead in trespasses and sins. When you walk down the streets of Fresno or wherever you go, you are walking by people that are moving, talking, laughing, drinking, eating. But spiritually, they are dead. They're as dead as those boys hanging on those gallows. All humanity, since Adam and Eve is born, was born, is dead in trespasses and sins. In Matthew 8, 21, a disciple approached Jesus and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Paul didn't originate that idea that there are people who are alive and yet dead spiritually, spiritually dead. But what did Jesus think of this deadness? Was it excusable? Matthew 23, 27 through 28, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Ephesians 2, 1, 5. This is us, and you have he quickened. When you accept Jesus Christ and you are born again, and you have he quickened, we don't quicken ourselves. You he hath quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sin, where in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. You cannot initiate new life. The, the, no man can come unto the, unto the Father unless the Spirit draw him. As Rizpahs, we need to pray over our, the ones around us that we know are spiritually dead and say, Father, draw, Holy Spirit, draw. This is the intercession. No matter what they look like, you step there on your sackcloth and you intercede for them. So, so what does dead in trespass? Dead in sins and trespasses mean. It means just what it says. 
I like this quote by Wiersbe. It says, the unbeliever is not sick. He does not need resuscitation. He needs resurrection. All lost sinners are dead. And the only difference between one sinner and another is the state of decay. And you know, you can look at young people that are dead in their spirit, but they're youthful, they're beautiful, they're, they're to be envied. You can see them get hooked on drugs. You can see their beauty fade away quickly. You can see what the ravages of, that, of, of what is happening to them. It's like Rizba viewing. When she first looked at her son, she could probably recognize their faces. They dark, twisted maybe, but she could still recognize them. But as she looked and as the time went on and as the elements decompose these bodies, they become more unrecognizable. And have you known people like that where you have seen sin make them unrecognizable? I had a niece who died when she was 23 years old. She was on drugs by the time she was 12. She was beautiful. She had the most beautiful blonde hair, so gorgeous. And she came to my house. She must have been about 17 or 18. And she came with a black pimp, not into my house, but he dropped her off. She thought ever she was, she was living high on the hog. She was bought. And I cried and I talked to her and I said, Kim, you know that you've got to give your heart to the Lord. And she says, I know, Aunt Linda, but I've got time. The next time I saw her, she was 22. I didn't recognize her. She looked like she was 80. She was thin. Her hair was like straw. It was too late. And she died. Young woman. But you see, when we see our loved ones like that, we see what sin does. We should be diligent to intercede. So we are all called to intercede just like Rizba. We look around us and we see so many that are spiritually dead. As Rizba viewed those that she loved in various stages of decay, I'm sure that after several months, there was nothing left but bones. I think that's about two months. Their flesh now gone. The bones could slip through any ropes or bonds and bands that kept him suspended, and they fell down before her. This made no difference to her. She remained upon the sackcloth. She waited until she received a response God responded by sending the rain. King David responded by collecting the bones and placing them in a place of honor. 
Many of us look at our children, our grandchildren, our spouses, our neighbors, those who have not accepted the Lord, and we know that they are spiritually dead. They have no spiritual nature to incline them to do anything for the glory of God. Lacking the spiritual nature, they are dead, dead to righteousness, dead to holiness, dead to obedience, dead to faith. The word does not penetrate them, nothing. They are totally under the control and the domination of Satan. They have no control against him. They can't resist him. He is the prince power of this air. They cannot resist him unless God does the work. They have to submit. So they have no control against him if there is no spiritual life within them. The enemy, he sends his vultures. Birds in the Bible are a sign of evil spirits. He sends the vultures after them. And what does it say about the wild beasts? They oppose the gospel. They are there to devour you. So the enemy sends his vultures and his beasts to destroy. But like Rizpah, we must spread out the sackcloth and cry out to the Lord for them. We must not look at the stage of decomposition, for our God is able in any stage to bring life. We do have the authority in Jesus to cancel assignments against those we are praying for. We can proclaim the light of the gospel into the darkened areas. His word sent out was going to accomplish what it is sent out to do. And as I was studying this lesson, I thought of Ezekiel standing in the valley of dry bones. And the Lord said to him, prophesy to these bones. And we know that God breathed life back into them. And they stood on their feet as a mighty army. You can't be any more dead than a pile of bones. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a saving God. Do not give up when you're praying for people. Do not give up no matter what it looks like. 1 Corinthians 15, 2, 4 tells us that Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Messiah, God's Son, died for our sins. He shed not just human blood, not just divine blood, but divinely human blood on that cross. God accepted that. He died and he rose the third day. He ascended and was glorified. That is the gospel. If you are going to be spiritually alive, the life that you desperately need is wrapped up in a person, and his name is Jesus. 